Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I'm speaking with Joel Christian Gill, who's an historian and cartoonist and has just released the graphic novel version of Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped from the Beginning. The new graphic adaptation contains stunning illustrations from Gill, whose memoir, Fights, One Boy's Triumph Over Violence, was named as one of the best graphic novels of 2020 by the New York Times. Today, Joel and I talk about adapting books into graphic form, comics as a medium and not a genre, and so many books that have changed the way that Joel looks at the world. Reminder, our July book club pick is Watchmen by Alan Moore with illustrations from Dave Gibbons, which we will discuss on July 26th with Joel Christian Gill. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the podcast can be found in the link in the show notes. If you want more of the stacks, join the stacks pack. It's just $5 a month and you get our monthly bonus episodes, our virtual book club meetups, and you get to join a phenomenal book community that is the stacks pack discord. We have the best time. We dig deeper into our book club reads, share recommendations. We even talk about reality TV because it is bachelorette season, people. So if you want to join the fun or just want to support the stacks and make it possible for me to do this show every single week, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Shout out to some of our newest members, Heather Hoyness, KB, Sass Weber, Nick Burka, Dylan Flesh, and Joanna Fletcher. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire stacks pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Joel Christian Gill. All right, everybody, I'm so excited. I am joined today by author and illustrator and all around great guy, Joel Christian Gill. He's the author of Fights, and recently he adapted Ibram X. Kendi's stamp from the beginning into a graphic form. Joel, welcome to the Stacks. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I can let me just tell the folks how we met because it's sort of a fun random thing and then we'll we'll dive right. into you. So Joel and I met at the LA Times Book Prize because we were both presenting awards. I was just asked to present an award because I don't know, I live in LA, but Joel was one of the judges for the graphic uh category. So Joel's an expert and he is 
now my friend. And so I told him, I was like, oh, you have a book coming out. You will be forced to come on the stacks and talk about graphic books with us because I know nothing about them and I know that people love them. So I made good. Here we are. Will you just tell folks a little bit about yourself besides that one tiny fraction of your life that I shared with them? (laughs) Yeah. So um, I am a professor at Boston University. I am the chair of the MFA in visual narrative. Um, I have been drawing comics for about... 15 years, I guess now. Um, I started self-publishing, slipped into history and drawing comics about Black history, spending lots of time, really spending my time thinking about how um, how to tell the stories of disaffected people in America, um, specifically Black people, um, and eventually started telling more and more of those stories until I turned to telling my own. I speak nationally on the importance of, of sharing stories, and I believe that comics are the best way to do that um, in a lot of ways because they're a sneaky way to teach people. Um, So I spent a lot of time really talking about being, but I tell people I'm an evangelist for comics Mm. and that um, comics have the ability to connect to people in ways that we don't necessarily collect with pros. So yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southwestern Virginia. Um, I was born in Martinsville, Virginia. Uh, Martinsville is famous for two things, racetracks and racism. Um, It's uh, (laughs) it's just below West Virginia and just above North Carolina. So like in that curve of um, of Virginia. Um, And I spent the formative time there until I went to grad school at BU. Um, And then we moved to New England. So we were back and forth, up and down until I've been in, I'm in New Hampshire now, um, which I call White Conda. Um, and, um, I say white conda because when I leave New Hampshire, I significantly decrease the black population by leaving the state. So, um, I always say that, um, you know, I'm, I make, I make New Hampshire blacker. So yeah, that's that's your contribution to the state. You're a civil servant. Exactly. Um, Okay. So I read your memoir fights and I have a lot of questions about that. Okay. But first I just want to ask you about when you discovered graphic books was a thing you could do? Because so often authors come on the show and they're like, I had no idea writing books was a job. And I feel like because kids often are introduced to graphic books as like a way to get them into reading, I would imagine that maybe you came across this stuff long before you ever realized that it was something you could do. So I'm curious if my assumption is at all correct. No, I think um, like most kids, I started drawing just like everybody else did when they were little. And as soon as I discovered comics, I started drawing comics. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a brief period in my life when I didn't draw comics. I was trying to be a painter because I was going to make people cry with my paintings. I was going to okay. be Basquiat, right? Okay. Okay. Um, but comics was always in the background. It was always a thing that I really wanted to do. And it wasn't until I had a friend who in grad school told me that my paintings were trying to tell stories and failing Hmm. that I went back to the idea of like figuring out how comics work. But just to to answer your question shortly, like comics was a thing that I like immediately saw and was like, I'm going to draw comics. That's a, that's a thing. Right. Right. But did you know it could be a job? As a poor kid in Southwestern Virginia, I don't know. I don't know if I ever thought about jobs in that way. Do you know what I mean? Like I never really had an opportunity Um, And I write that in fights, right? In the beginning, like people always, people ask you what you want to be when you grow up. And I don't think I ever really thought about it in like a concept of growing up. It was like, I was so living from moment to moment at that time in my life. And it wasn't until I married my wife and we started like having kids that I actually had a thought about a future um, past like being a rapper. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. Okay. The rapper. Um, 
So in fights, you know, I, I read it. I loved it. I think that like the way that you sort of brought your story to the graphic form was really, I think it really landed. Like there was a lot of suspense in your story in a way that was, I found interesting, especially knowing, having met you and knowing where you are now. Like I was yeah. like, oh, you know, we'll see. And then I was really like, what's going to happen to him? Like, I'm so <laughs> nervous, you know? And like the colors were so vivid and like, just like, it's like very evocative emotionally. I felt like, like I really felt yeah. like connected to as a kid. And then I got to the end and you have this little piece in the afterword that's sort of like, you know, memoir is not biography and I changed things here. And I'm just curious about that because does that change, like does changing your biography to make it memoir, keep it memoir or does it then become more like autofiction? Um, I think autofiction is an, is, is an appropriate term for fights. Um, I changed it mostly, you know, for liability purposes. Yeah. I mean, um, there's not anything that in fights that I would say individual, like if somebody were to come to me and I'm like, you, you depicted me in this way. Um, and you made me an abuser. I'm like, well, let's talk about it. You want to go to court? Like, let's do it. <laughs> like, that's the way I would feel about it. Right. 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 Um, and I don't think people want, they don't want that smoke. Um, and so it doesn't, but I think autofiction is fine because like I combine people like G money and Rook are, like dominantly two separate people, but are amalgams of a couple of people, I right? See. So like, um, so for example, when I'm fighting Rook at the end and he hits me with brass knuckles, I, that wasn't him. That was actually somebody else, but it made sense to make him that person. And the same thing with G Money, like connecting with them and like having a cuz like that, what that wasn't happening, but it was just, it made sense to sort of yeah. connect them. Um, and so like, just as in, in terms of forwarding the, and furthering the narrative. Um, and so like, um, right now I'm working on a book with Don Lemon and we're doing similar things with people in Don's life. Like, um, what one really simple and like non-controversial thing is like when he gets to high school, he's like super interested in fashion and he has this, he meets this new girl at the new high school. Cause he goes from public school to public school and she's like all about fashion and she's helping him. But I'm like, let's just make that your high school best friend because it cleans the narrative up as right. opposed to having to alter new people. And it's a small thing, right? Like right. His, his friend is not going to be like, Oh, I didn't ask him about that, but it's such a small thing that I don't think it'll be a big deal. Um, so like it just helps clean streamline the narrative mm -hmm. to create from having to introduce new people new every time. Yeah. yeah, totally. And when you, so you mentioned before, like you were writing and adapting history and like some of your previous books, and then you switched over to writing your own story. What was that like for you? Was like, how did you, did you approach it differently? Did you think about it differently? Was it more challenging or easier to tell your own story versus someone else's story? I think, um, so Telling the stories of disaffected Black people in history um, and shining a light and uncovering their stories um, helped me figure out how to tell stories. Mm -hmm. Because initially, when I started drawing comics, I really was failing, right? I was 100% <laughs> failing and trying to figure out how to tell stories. And I started to draw a version of, of fights that was called dandelions. And it was a metaphor for like kids who like, you can't kill them, right? Like these beautiful little flowers that no matter what you do to them are always going to grow. And it was like, they're like, they always like grow. Like one of the original ideas for, for, for that story was called, was to call it cracks in the concrete. Mm -hmm. Like these little places where you could slip through. And um, because I felt like that's what I did in my life. 
And so I drew this thing. It's like magical realist sort of a thing. And it was a hot mess, <laughs> um, like 100%. And a friend of mine who's a cartoonist, um, Jesse Lonergan, when I showed him like the 50 pages that I had drawn, and this was like before actually really digging into how comics work, he just flipped through it. Like he drew like, he, he was like this. He like flipped through all the pages, like just leaving through like 50 pages. And he's like, I'm 50 pages in this. I have no idea what I'm reading. Mm. Um, and so like, Telling the stories and adapting the stories of like Henry Box Brown and Bass Reeves and all these other people like that. The story is there. The narrative is there. Mm-hmm. Right. There's like they have a beginning, middle and end. They oftentimes have climaxes, denouement. They have plot points that like stream through their entire lives. So it was really easy for me to just figure out how to like organize that. And so that gave me the facility to then go back and tell my own story after like having some like having some stories under my belt. Mm-hmm. And so like it helped me. Right. Yeah. And it's actually the way I teach, too. So I teach my students to start with nonfiction because I feel like it's easier to arrange things than mm. to sort of build it from scratch. That's so interesting. OK, when we met, you were talking about comics is not a genre. Right. And I would just I, I was very taken by this speech that you give that I know that you probably give a million times to every audience you speak to, but you're speaking to a new new audience, the Stacks audience. Okay. So will you do your comics is not a genre speech for us? Yeah. So comics, so there's, there's a difference between medium and genre. And I think because of the way in which we have, we've come to think of comics specifically in pop culture. Um, and this is a, this is a history that goes back to, um, the 1940s and 50s when we start banning comics. So like in the early part of the 20th century, there are these like in like 1910, there's like this thing in Ladies Home Journal, like comics are ruining kids' kids' brains. Um, and so when we get, you know, conservatives often have like a, they also often when they run out of ideas, they, they fight culture war arguments. And so oh, like I've, they're I've running out of ideas. I've heard of them doing that. I don't know. I've heard about I don't know if that. you've ever heard that. Um, <laughs> not um, now, of course, so, but I've not heard now, they used but to do that. <laughs> Some point in history. And so when um, so in the 1950s, we start seeing that 1940s, we start seeing this again, this after World War II, um, um, we don't no longer have like a Hitler to fight. It's like, what do we fight now? Like, what do we fight? So they're so they start to do this massive thing. This guy named Fred Wortham, Dr. Fred Wortham writes this book called Seduction of the Innocent. And he basically says that um, comics are tariff they are um causing kids to be juvenile delinquents all like a bunch of bullshit like i hope i can say that um but like um and so it goes down right it goes this whole thing goes out and so people start censoring comics um which is one of the reasons why you have the term graphic novel and not comics mad magazine is a magazine because they didn't want to be connected to comics because they were starting to censor comics a lot of cartoonists left comics and didn't want to be separate didn't want to be connected to the idea of comics and so we leave it and so we get this like so comics basically becomes superhero comics and they become juvenile based i mean there's some great stuff in there but for the most part they make them for kids and so like for almost a generation that's what we have until the 1960s and you get the comic c-o-m-i-x movement and these people come in and they're just like they were influenced by some of these early comics and then like hated the sanitized version that comics did and so like all of this stuff in including the Comics Code Authority, which says that you have no sex, no drugs, no violence. And they say all sex, all drugs and violence. And so they start telling stories with like broader understandings. And then in the, and so the, and so like, as these things start to start to um, influence each other. So the underground movement influences the mainstream comics. And so the mainstream comics get much more interesting themes. And so as that starts to happen, with the underground comics movement, people start making stories that 
with comics that are really about other things. And so Scott McCloud in Understanding Comics says that comics is a medium, not a genre, because if you place, if you have a picture and you're in at a kid's birthday party and you put red drink, I'm from the South, you put red drink in that. Um, in that picture, it's for everybody, right? But if you're in Spain and you're having, you know, um, you're having breakfast or whatever lunch is, because it's not, you know, breakfast, a siesta, right? So you have siesta and you want to have sangria and you put it in that same picture, it's now no longer for kids. And so comics is the picture and not the thing you put in it. It's a means of expression. It's not what is expressed. Right. So it's just like how nonfiction is a medium for writing all other sorts of nonfiction stories or whatever but like anything could be a graphic or a comic the content could be anything absolutely and I think what's really interesting about that the way in which to think about that it would be like going up to Stephen King and asking him what was his what what is his favorite historical fiction thing that he's ever written Right. right because he doesn't write historical fiction he writes a specific genre within the medium of writing. He writes like horror and fantastic realism, right? So like making the connection between him and sort of, um, who's the guy that wrote the Lincoln biography like Obama was reading years ago? Um, but like- Oh, 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 uh, G- Doris Kearns Goodwin or something. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Like going to G- Doris Kearns Goodwin and when she says I'm a writer being like, oh, tell me about the last horror thing you written. Like that's the same thing that happens to us cartoonists that you come, people come up to you and they're like, so do you draw for Marvel or DC? And I'm like, I don't really draw superhero. Mm. I mean, Angela Davis is a superhero, but I'm like in a different way. Right, right, right. (laughs) Right. So wait, so can you, so basically I know this is like a very remedial question, but I, like I said before, this is very new to me. I only started reading. I think I read my first like graphic book in 2020. I think it was a good talk by, um, Mira Jacob, because she came on the show. So I read that in another book. I might have read one or two other things, but that's like the first one I really remember reading. And people talk about graphic books, comics, and then manga. What is the difference or manga? What's the difference between those things? Is there a difference? Is it just the same different words for the same thing? So manga means je- comics in j- Japanese. Okay. Um, because of the because of the disconnect between what floppy the sort of monthly comics, um, and because Americans have a tendency to simplify everything and make it dumb, like we're barbarians okay. in that way. So like <laughs> they, they like they like the people who wanted to move away from and not be connected to the comics, which they thought of as like being the monthly superhero comics. That was when the idea of graphic. Um, graphic novels came out and then even further um hillary trute who is a um who is a writer she wrote a book called women in comics and she just wrote she writes about mouse a lot she's a brilliant professor at northeastern and a, a friend she says that um you know she says graphic narrative right because like it's, there should be some kind of because comics isn't necessarily like because people have an idea it's kind of like people don't want to call me a cartoonist because they think it they think it seems like less than Got and it. i'm like if you think it's less you think cartoonist is less than try it Right. <laughs> like just sit down and do it one day. Just go ahead and try to like take some like complicated idea and turn it into something simplistic. And so there's not like there's no difference. It's all comics, right? It's just different reasoning behind why we call it comics. And manga is just like that and I wouldn't even say that manga is a genre in and of itself because manga is so very specific that they have books that are made for for businessmen um, about well, there's books that are made for teenage girls about 
gay boys at a French boarding school that's super popular. Like those are super popular. They have cookbooks that are just manga. They have superhero stories or adventure stories. And so there's a really amazing series that turned into an um, anime a couple of years ago called Monster. And it was about a surgeon who saves a little boy's life. And that little boy grows up to be a serial killer and then starts killing all of the people that are in the surgeon's way. So he has to go on this quest to find this kid and along the, like, it's crazy, <laughs> but that's not like, it's not a thing that you would think about is like, you know, like a genre, like that's not really genre, right? It's right. like, that's, that's like suspense and thriller kind of a thing. So I think, so like thinking about manga or, um, or comics or graphic novels, they're all the same thing, just different words for these. I mean, that was a long answer, but like, as I'm a professor, nobody's ever accused me of not being able to talk. So there's that. <laughs> well, I have a podcast and all I need is for people to talk to me. So thank you for doing your job. Okay. I want to, I, I could do this for like hours, but I do want to get to Stamped from the beginning, the okay. new adaptation. So people who listen to the show know that Stamped is like one of the books of my life. The, the original, the first one that he wrote, Ibram's like yep. tome. I read yep. it in 2018, right before I started the show. And I just, I loved it so much. And I have read the majority of the adaptations. Um, I haven't read the kids one, but I did read Jason Reynolds. I read yours. Yep. And I'm wondering sort of like, how you, I guess the first question is how much did you and Ibram work together on this and versus how much was it him being like, will you do this? And you taking the stuff and like doing your thing. I mean, that, that's pretty much like we had like a little back and forth. People asked me once, like, so you get LOL text from Ibram Kendi. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, because I'll send him a joke. He doesn't laugh. He would, nice try. He came <laughs> yeah, on the show. Everybody knows you're he laughing. Laughs. He does not He's LOL. Laughing. He's never he LOL in his life. <laughs> <laughs> He's the most serious person I've ever had on this show. <laughs> he definitely laughs um, and he finds the humor and he th- he thinks humor is important and, and puts it in a, con- in a historical concept about um, how black people in general dealt with like this terrible oppression. Like it's a, it's definitely a thing like black comedians talk about it. Richard Pryor was famous. Dick Gregory was famous for it. Um, and so like lots of people were famous for it, but um, so he basically gave me a list of like the important things, a, a highlighted document that had all of the, um, you know, like the things that he thought were important for Stamped. Um, so he gave me that list. And then I basically built that list and added to the sections and like added stuff in there. And my and there's a lot of my commentary in it, specifically when the characters are talking, like when um, Angela Davis is like, I've had enough of America's like hope and like freedom. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I've had enough of this American version of freedom. And she's like, I'm off to Africa. And I think there's a, I don't know if it's still in there, but I think I've we might have taken it out, but it was one of my favorite jokes. And it was like, W.E.B. Du Bois is like irritated. And he's like, I'm, t- it's, I'm trying to pull a, it's time to pull a Dave Chappelle, right? And he goes to Africa. Um, so like adding those little things in there was, was mine. And so like, I would text him like the pictures and stuff. Cause like, he was like one of the few people I could like, I could like show the laugh. Like right. I need somebody to see that this is funny. Right. And so I would send it to him. Um, so like he gave me free reign. And I think that, that was, that's important for him is to like, when he worked with Jason Reynolds, when he's worked with Nick Stone is to let these, let people take that, take something that he's done and put their, their 
like stamp on it, right? right? Put your like Jason Reynolds's stamp is on the young people. Nick's version, Nick Stone's version is her stamp is on that. My stamp is on this one. And sometimes I literally, and when you're at a bookstore, I literally stamp them. So <laughs> I know I saw you made that stamp so cool. I want. Can you make a stamp of me? I want a stamp of my face, like a real Leo, just a real crazy person who's like, can you make this about me immediately? Um, okay, but so I want to ask you about some of the stuff, some of the stamps that you put on this book, especially one of the things that I noticed is like you use like some black slang on some of like the really yeah. horrible white racist people. And I was really curious about that. Because it sort of reminds me of Hamilton, the musical, right? Where it's like you put like black culture on like awful racist people. And like, what does that do? What does that do for those people and for the reader? Well, so AAVE, I think, in my personal opinion, when we talk about American culture, um, we are talking in a lot of ways about black culture. That's right. Um, a lot of, and, and really in like, if you think about it, we're talking about Southern culture, right? Right. Cause um, when you get above the Mason Dixon line, um, you have people who are Armenian, who are Irish. Like I always say that there's this really interesting joke that I always make that if I go to a cookout in new England, I never know what I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. But if I go to the South, whether I'm going to a white people's house or a black people's house, I know I'm going to get fried chicken. It's just not going to be my mama's fried chicken. Right. right. Um, so like, it's like, you always have the same thing. And so when you think about that and you think about the quintessential ideas of what American is, it's like American is black culture. And so like, and like making, making cotton matter, making like colonial, um, you know, um, during the sale and whist trials, some like um, colonialness um, Puritans say like that's mad sus is hilarious <laughs> or like having like um, you know a bunch of a crowd of people during colonial times during the smallpox ap- epidemic say yeah miss me with that you know what I mean like that's funny that's funny to me like it's just a right. funny thing that anachronistic language I think adds a humor to the book because it's a slog right like r- like reading this history and I you know and I say depressing it's informative but it's it's depressing, not because like Ibram wrote this depressing. It's just that the history of racist ideas is a, in a you can see it coming, yes, right? You can yes. see the cyclical thing. Like when I I don't know if you read um, Twelve Years a Slave, but when I first read that book, I had to put it down twice because mm. I was so angry that this had happened to somebody. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want people to read stamped and feel that same way. I mm-hmm. wanted them to laugh out loud. Even when it was funny, not funny. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. And who were who do you imagine that your audience is for this book? Everybody. Um, I think my like that's like legitimately. I wrote it so that every like I wrote this book so that there are people who are like academics who would read this and be like, oh, that's really interesting. And kids would read this and go, oh, that's really funny. And everybody in between who wouldn't necessarily read a five hundred and 29, 79 page history tome would pick up a graphic novel and read it and sort of like pour themselves into these ideas because what's interesting about how comics work and comics are a sneaky way to teach people stuff. And because those simplistic little people, we can pour ourselves in them. The more simplistic they are, the more abstract they are, the not the less specific they become, the more likely we can pour ourselves into them. Mm-hmm. Um, like everybody always wants a brown thumbs up, right? When they're like sending an emoji, but nobody asks for a brown smiley face because it's weird. That would be a weird <laughs> thing to get. We resonate with that smiley face. And so I think the closer we get to the smiley face character, the more we can. And it bu- and it does build empathy. People do feel those things. And you can tell that people feel those things. And you can tell that they are building empathy because people keep banning them. The people that don't want us to be empathetic to each other are banning those books. Yeah. Can I ask a really practical question about the stamped book? 
Yeah. Why is it black and white? Is that like, what's that conversation like with? Oh, I think that's, I think that's when in terms of um, the markets, like the illiterate market, like the adult market versus the kids market. I think there's like a push between like, sometimes you want black and white for adult market and sometimes you want um, color for kids market. I don't necessarily think that's still the the case anymore, Mm -hmm. but it's also like a production value and it's like cheaper and faster to do a black and white. Um, so I think it's a little bit of like, this is for the adult market. It's color, um, it's black and white. So it goes there. And, um, and so I think there's a little bit of that involved. I typically just make everything color, but for this one, it was like, we're going to make this black and white. And I'm like, okay. Is that more difficult for you? Is it easier? What, what's that like? I had to, like, if you go back through my Instagram, you can see where I'm practicing how to use black and white. Cause mm. I had done no, I had none of my books had been black and white at that point. Um, So it was like me experimenting with tones and textures to try to get this, to make it interesting. Like, how am I going to this? Because color is a really important element to like, you know, add emotional cues to things like I did in fights. Um, But um, so I couldn't do that. So it was like, I was experimenting with all of these ways in which to do it. It would have been really fun. I think it would have been really fun to do it in color. Yeah. It's just interesting. We, we had, um, Kristen Radke on who wrote Seek You. And then she had another graphic novel that I can't, remember the name of of course it's totally escaping me but um that for her first one was black and white and then when she did seek you it was in color and she was saying that she did the first one in black and white because it was too hard for her to do color color was like very distracting and difficult for her because it felt like such a huge indicator to the audience and that she like didn't feel she had a good grasp on it so she said she spent so much time on the color in the second book and it was like it's whole a whole other beast so it's interesting to hear you say that you always do color and that this was like a thing just you know different ways of doing it yeah because you you when you think about materials um like it's like the best, the best I, t- I taught color theory for a long time and I still teach it um, in aspects to my, to my grad students. But like, if you need to go to the store, like I'm going to paint, like I'm going to learn to paint. Remember there's this woman that I knew years ago was like, I'm going to go paint. So she went to the art supply store and she bought like $400 worth of like oil paints. And it was like, you know, light, all these different reds, all these different blues, all these different greens. Um, and there's like a effortlessness about just picking up the right green and just mm-hmm. putting it down. Right. But then I went to I went to a grad program and there was a professor named Bill White who was incredible. Um, and I still keep in touch with him today, who taught me color theory. And he was like, You're gonna do two yellows, two reds, and two blues, one warm, one cool for each one. Right. And that get like you would think that that would be limiting, but it actually pushes you to be more creative with mm. how much how you use those colors. Um, so I got much more color facility by doing that. So I'm like really comfortable with it, but some people just really struggle with color because of the way in which we see like women, um, on average, typically see more colors than men do and have better color vision than men do. Um, and lots of men, there's a lot, there's like a Venn diagram of men and people who are colorblind and men typically fill up that space. Not, Not all people who are colorblind are men, but a lot of them are men. Um, so there's like a difference in like how people, their people's color vision. And so mm. like how you, how you understand those things. And it's really complicated because, um, you're dealing with, and then, then you add color and emotion and like mm-hmm. society, like for example, in, in some, in some cultures in Africa, red is the color you wear to a funeral. Right. Mm. And here we wear black and in some other places around the world it's white you wear to a funeral. So like, you know, like trying to deal with all those color complexities, if you haven't spent as much time as I have, like digging into the details of how color theory works um, and spending time. Like we used to give our students color theory tests to see where they were on the spectrum and then teach toward the color theory test. 
um, how we were doing that the color vision test um, just so we could like figure out like how, cause if a student had a red green color blindness, we would like have to teach toward that to help them figure out how to use the mm. color. Um, and so like we would do like, that's like, it's a really complicated thing. And I think when it's, and it's t- intimidating sometimes I remember a friend of mine, Whit Taylor, who wrote a book, um, ghost and she wrote, um, Montana diaries, which is a one amazing little like journal comic that she did with her husband for her, before her first child was born and they drove through Montana and she's black and he's white. And she was like terrified of like going through these like super conservative places. Um, she, we, I saw her at the Schomburg, um, a couple of years ago and she was looking at one of my books and she was like, I feel like the color in your books is just like so amazing. And I'm like, I don't feel like I feel stupid when it comes to color sometimes. <laughs> right. Cause you just don't know, but yeah, it's just like levels to this. Okay. Levels to it. I have to ask another remedial question. What is color That's theory? Okay. So color theory is the idea for how colors relate um, in art. So color, how color works. So one of the, like the, the, probably the thing that you're probably most familiar with is somebody who doesn't make art is probably complementary colors, yes. right? Red, green, purple, yellow. Um, orange, um, blue and orange. Right. And that's typically the first thing that people learn and -hmm. then they move through that, but there's nuances behind that. Like there's like, um, color vibrations. There's like the Bezold effect. There's like all of these things where you can make one color look like two colors, two colors look like one, like you can do all of these things with colors, but it's all like about how you manipulate them and how your color vision works Mm -hmm. and then your practice. And so I used to do this stuff with the stuff called color aid paper where you take like these little squares and it was pigmented paper and you take these squares and you cut them and you cut these two colors that looked, they were close, right. But they looked really different. Like you anybody with the naked eye could look. And so we would, we would play with like putting colors behind them to make one color move to another one, whether it's a warm versus cool color system. Like some colors are warm, some colors it's cool. Depending on how you play with them, you can push them in the back and pull them front Mm. and you can make things pop. I'm looking at all the books on your shelf and I can just see color. I'm like, let's turn around and look. You got red green over your left, <laughs> over your right shoulder. You got, you know, monochromatic in the middle. You've got neutral colors and you've arranged it. This is color theory. You've arranged this in color theory. You've got all colors in different spaces. Like you've actually arranged things in like neutrals and blues. And that, Thanks that's for noticing. Theory. Yeah. <laughs> I do love my bookshelf. Thank you. Um, okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit. That's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. We're going to move off of your work and sort of into the books that you love. But before we do, um, every month someone writes in asking for a book recommendation. So I'm going to read to you what they asked, and then you're going to give them at least one book recommendation, and it can be whatever you want for based on this. Okay. Okay, this question comes from Sydney, and Sydney says, I'm going to Greece for vacation in mid-July, and I'm trying to bring only one physical book for the trip. I'm looking for something engrossing, but not too heavy. I'm an easy crier, and that's not the vibe I'm looking for at the beach. I'm a big fiction reader, but also love memoirs, narrative nonfiction, short stories, and essays. Recently, I've loved Lessons in Chemistry, Julie Otsuka's work, Anything by Emily St. John Mandel, and There There by Tommy Orange. Ideally, I'm looking for something kind of lengthy and currently out in paperback. Oh, that's great. Um, I, which is going to be funny, I'm not going to recommend a comic. I'm going to recommend The Dead Are Arising. Oh my gosh. I put that on my list and I took it off for her, but it was one of my books that I was going to recommend. It's so good. That's a, such a great book. And like, I mostly, I think that's a great book because like, not only does it like it flesh out Malcolm X's life. Um, but the, I am really fascinated with cults and mm. like subcultures, mm-hmm. um, and like the, the building of the nation of Islam separate from mm-hmm. the traditional Orthodox Muslim is really interesting to me and very fascinating and how that's permeated through pop culture with like the mother switch connection and like a lot of stuff in funk and like the Asiatic black man in the early nineties. And like how that all dates back to these, like the black Moors and the black Israelites. And like, like I love all of that stuff. And it's such an in-depth story that it gives a much fuller picture of who Malcolm X was. And I think it's just absolutely brilliant. Okay. But I will say this. Sydney said she's an easy crier and I am not an easy crier, but I will tell you when I read that book and we got to the assassination of Malcolm X, I cried. I couldn't believe it. I literally cried, even though I've read, I've read, you know, the Manning Marable Malcolm X. I've read, of course, Malcolm X's Malcolm X with Alex Haley. I've, you know, seen the movie. I've read like, I've I've read a book about Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. Like I know the story. It was not a surprise, but the way that the book is written is so well done that I literally 
cried being like, I cannot believe they killed that mate. Like I was so, right. I'm like getting emotional right now talking about it. I don't know that Sydney, I don't know that you will cry, but for me, I was like deeply, deeply moved in that moment of the book. It's a fantastic book. I second that recommendation wholeheartedly. Yeah. It's so incredible. Like I read that book and was like telling everybody, like just one of those books, when you read it, you tell everybody for like weeks, this is the book you should read. Yeah, for sure. Um, because it like, it really positions Malcolm, like Malcolm X is such of like a legendary figure and it really makes him whole even in the context of the 1960s, being friends with James Baldwin and understanding like the understanding about being a queer black man at, at that time. And everybody knew it wasn't like he was hiding it. Right. So like mm -hmm. they knew, and you think about Malcolm X and it's like, Oh, he was back. He was a black Muslim. He probably was, but yeah, he was really good friends with Matt and Bayard Rustin and yeah. all of these people. Like, so like there, it just makes them way more nuanced. Mm -hmm. And I love that about uh, even like Malcolm X and his, his like, because another one of the criticisms people used to give about Malcolm X is that he had, he was he was misogynist because of the, the nation of Islam and the way they treated women. But even that is different in the book, right? Mm -hmm. When he's talking, when he's answering those questions at the end, he's talking about women's roles, and he's saying he's bringing like a much broader, mm -hmm. even closer to biblical sense of how women are supposed to be treated. And I think it's just it's just amazing. I, like Malcolm X is like it's yeah like it's sad that like how do you kill somebody who is that yeah. who is who, who who loves people that much yeah totally right? okay sydney here are my recommendations for you i'm gonna give you a recommendation that should surprise exactly zero people but also i know everyone hates when i talk about this book which is gone with the wind it is the perfect vacation book. I know that you write about it in Stamped. Joel just gave me a look, but it is one of my favorite books. I, I know everybody hates me for it, but I love the book. It's a fantastic book. It's racist, but it's also a good book. I'm just going to throw that out there. It's paperback and it's lengthy, but you can read it quickly. My other recommendation is another book that I love that I recommend a lot. And it's Empire of Pain by Patrick Radenkeefe. And it's about the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. And it's like about the conspiracy behind that. It's very compelling. Um, and then the last one I'm going to give you is a book that I have never actually read, but I really want to read on vacation, which is Crazy Rich Asians. I've heard it's just like, it's a big book. It's like 400 or 500 pages. I heard it's a great time. I feel like if you want a beachy read, that's like a fun read with a good story. You could do Crazy Rich Asians and have a great time in Greece. So those are my recommendations. Joel hates me because I recommended Gone with the Wind, but you know what? It's, I am who I am. Uh, but also I'm going to be, I'm going to be in July. So if you are reading, I'm going to be in Greece in July too. So if I see you on the beach and you're reading book i'm gonna knock it out of your hand <laughs> <laughs> no you're gonna be like are you sydney <laughs> also she might not be the only person reading it just fyi it's yeah. still a popular book um anybody else who wants a book recommendation read on air email ask the stacks at the stackspodcast.com and we will do it on the show okay joel now it's your turn to recommend a bazillion books two books you love one book you hate can i just say a book that i love hate um at the Ooh, same time yeah no one's ever done that is um, Asterios Polyp is a, um, by David Mazzuchelli. I think David Mazzuchelli is like one of the greatest living cartoonists, um, alive right now. He got his like work in, um, working in DC comics. He like all of the Batman movies are based on his work with Frank Miller, like okay. Batman year one. And he did amazing stories. He's an amazing cartoonist. Um, and he wrote, he did Paul Oster's City of Glass. He interpreted that book, um, okay. with Paul Karasik, who, um, is a colleague of mine at BU. And, um, but he wrote Asterios Polyp and I tell people that Asterios Polyp 
So there's a couple of things about Asterios Paul that I think my students told me, and it's sort of like, it made me think about this in a different way. It's like, it's a white man going through a midlife crisis. Mm. And like, how many times have we heard that story and how how tired we are of that story? So Mm -hmm. that's the thing that I don't like, that I hate about the book. Mm -hmm. But the way in which David Mischelli uses the medium of comic to make you hear someone's voice, Mm. right? Like between Asterios and his wife, Hannah, when you heat, when they, the word balloons are different. So when you, when he writes Asterios, when he writes Hana, you can hear their voices. Mm-hmm. The way he uses color, a really good example of color theory is to look at this book. He uses color to denote um, past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. He used color to denote different moods. And so like there are times in the way he draws, he draws like Asterios very geometrically at one point at a party. And everybody has all these different like shapes. So think like, Picasso people walking around, okay. right? And so then you've got Asterios, who's who's a paper architect, the architect who has no um, hasn't had any buildings built, but he's a professor and he's like a renowned paper architect. So everything's on paper, nothing's built, and so he's drawn with like cubes and like see through cubes and and shapes. And Hana is drawn with this, and it's blue. And Hana is drawn with this pink, sketchy, like expressive line. And when they're having a connection at this party, those kind of concepts and styles merge, mm. which is amazing, right? Because mm-hmm. he had, he doesn't have to say they were like that in a way that you would say they're vibing, right, 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 right. right. But but you don't have to say that because you just show that they are actually literally merging, right? Mm. And when they have arguments. And if it's an argument where Asterios is out of place, he's drawn in her world. So everything is pink. All the surroundings are pink and he's still in that blue. And when she's in his world, all of the, the, the furniture and everything else is geometric and she's pink in that little like sketch. So it's just like an amazing book that I love, hate um, for that reason. Um, another book that I think is just pivotal in the way we think about comics is Understanding Comics. I just think if you are interested in visual culture at all, mm-hmm. you really should read Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. It was written in 1992, and it basically just explains how comics work. Um, it's really about it's really great, and it's really about. Um, somebody told me recently, like when they read that book, every time they read it, they go to sleep and they re- they just have dreams of Scott McCloud pointing at stuff <laughs> <laughs> in this in in its surrounding area. It's an amazing book. Um, and I think everybody should read it. Um, Watchmen, I think, is really fantastic read, um, especially if you loved or did not love the TV show. Oh. Um, like if you haven't seen the TV show, um, you should watch the TV show. It's the blackest thing I've ever seen on television. So and bad. it's like done in su- such an unobtrusive way. But when you read the comic, it is the perfect sequel to the comic mm. to take Rorschach's ideology, which Alan Moore was trying to make an argument about how terrible the idea of Batman was Mm. and how Batman was literally a fascist and Batman is a fascist and Rorschach is a fascist. And you look at the, 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 the natural progression of his ideology is white supremacy. Mm -hmm. It's so great. Like that, just as an aside, Batman is a terrible superhero. (laughs) Like if you are a billionaire, if you are a billionaire, Right. And you are in the town. Like if you are a billionaire in Chicago and you care about Chicago. Right. You want to fix Chicago. Right. What do you do? Do you like invest? Like think about like LeBron James. Like do you invest in a school where you can send thousands of kids and change the lives dynamically of like thousands of people by creating a school 
and giving parents like job um, job skills in the process, that's how you fix a community, right? Mm-hmm. But what Batman does is he takes his money, his billions of dollars in research and investment to beat up poor people. <laughs> to become a cop, right? Isn't he essentially just a right. cop? I've he never, I've never read or cop. seen a Batman. I've never read or seen Dumb. a superhero. I mean, which is which is terrible, right? Because I love. There's some superhero stories I love, and there are people who have written Batman in such amazing ways. Like Batman Year One is great. Batman: The Killing Joke is amazing. Batman: The Dark Knight Returns is amazing. But at the same time, Batman's a terrible superhero. Hmm. Like absolutely terrible. Um, because he's based like Elon Musk is Batman right now, right? right? And he's right. not doing anything great for the world. No, he's only doing bad things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what's the last great book you read? Watch Day Diaries. I think it was great. Um, I love that book. Um, you know, like that book won the the book prize, which I think is deserved. It's nominated for an Eisner right now. So mm-hmm. if this plays before the end of July and you get a chance to like nominate. Go and vote for an Eisner. Vote for Watch Day Diaries. I would argue for that. Um, I think, you know, they're like the best way to describe Watch Day Diaries and the way I talk about this book and why I love this book so much. I read it last year when we were in Martha's Vineyard and then I made my entire family read it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a short read. So there are stories that are specifically about four different people, Mm -hmm. right? Like I get the best example I can give is in college, I had to read Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. Okay. Professor who brought this, and you're laughing because you know automatically. <laughs> but like this, this professor brought this book in, and she was like, it was a class on the comic voice, and she said, read this book, it's funny. That book didn't resonate to me. Mm-hmm. It was written for like older white women in mm-hmm. their 40s. I mm-hmm. was a 25-year-old black man. These women were in the South. They had like relationship issues with their mothers, problems with their husbands who were basically mm-hmm. like wallpaper. And, and But that's not to say that I need that book to be about me, though. Right. Like, let me just be real clear. I don't need that book to be about me. That There's a certain segment of the population that books like that work for. Mm-hmm. It just stuck to me the same way that paper sticks to a wall without tape. <laughs> right? Not at all. And so, like, I read that book and it didn't connect. Wash Day Diaries sounds like it would do the same thing. It's about these four women of color. Um, and it's about as a black woman, you know, like about like washing your hair and like the rituals that are, that are around that. And I don't have hair anymore. (laughs) Uh, I choose to not have hair anymore, but like, I understand that. And I remember that. And and as a, as a kid, like my sisters and my mom, but that's not important. The important thing is that it's about friendship and Mm -hmm. about these women who have a friendship. I'll end at that book that thinking I want friends like that, Mm. right? Like who have me like they're that are that ride or die for me. And I think that that's the thing that I think you can get out of a book like that. Cause there's some books that are written for specific, specific people. And then some books that are written for about specific people, but can be for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, what's great about Wash Day Diaries. I love that. How do you uh, pick what you're going to read next? Um, randomly. You know, like if I'm working on a book um, and I'm inking, I listen to audiobooks a lot. So I listen to a lot of like fantasy and sci-fi books um, when I like do that. Like I probably, but because I spend a lot of time drawing, I spend, I, I probably power through like, and I read, and I don't know if you even listen to audiobooks, but I, I always do. listen to them like, like two times as fast. That's so right. I can I'm get a, through I'm really a one fast. five to one seven five, unless it's yeah. an Obama. The Obamas get a full 2.0. <laughs> yeah. So like slow. I slow everything. I mean, I, f- I speed everything up so I can power through it. Um, so I like, I flip back and forth between like something that I should have read a long time ago that I mm-hmm. feel like I just read, um, Angela Davis is, um, 
are with our prisons obsolete. Okay. And now I'm reading, uh, like I'm, I'm reading two other books. I'm reading a book called, um, I'm reading France Fernand's, um, black face, white mask. Mm-hmm. And I'm also reading he who fights monsters, which is a D and D style, like, like a guy goes into a universe and it's like he has D and D powers and he did, there's no explanation. He just got to figure out how to roll for 20 all the okay. time. <laughs> uh, so like, I just switch back and forth between like, am I in the mood to like, be angry at the world and try to figure out what I need to do, fix it. Or do I want to just leave? Like, do I just want to leave this place altogether? Mm. <laughs> Is yeah. this a time? Um, and so like, I think it's just like whatever's happening in the world. I, do, I choose, I choose based on that. What's a book that you love to recommend to people? Um, I recommend specifically to spend most of my time with artists, like um, the artist way. Mm-hmm. Um which is a really short book about just the process of creativity and powering through. Um, to my students, I recommend that one and the seven habits of highly effective people, which was my Bible for a while. Hmm. Um, mostly just because I think, I, I just think that if you're not going to go to therapy and spend time in therapy, you need to like figure out how to be a whole person. And I think that that book is a, is a way to help you figure that out um, with the seven habits, because it's really like cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. in a book form and mm-hmm. like seven little bite-sized pieces. And the, and the artist way is a little bit like that too. Um, teaching you how to, how to survive as a creative. Like, how do you, how do you decide what materials to use? How do you keep pushing through? Like a lot of us become professors and how do you make art when you're no longer a professor? And it's like, you just keep working. Like mm-hmm. you have to make this thing, the thing that you want to do and be passionate about it. So those are, those are typically books that, and then like, there's like a book, I can't remember the guy's name, but he wrote a book called Children of Time. Mm-hmm. Um, and his name is Adrian and his last name is Russian and I can't ever pronounce okay. it. But um, he wrote this science fiction book about this development, the society that develops from spiders and it's so creative mm. and just like incredible. There's a this really short synopsis. There's a woman who wants to create her own version of humanity. So she um, creates a retrovirus that's supposed to like evolve monkeys over like a generations and she's going to go into um uh like a cybernetic chainer chamber until she comes out like decades later she's going to be their god and it and it backfires and the spiders are the thing that actually get evolved oh. and so you watch this spider sit like the Ugh. spiders like I it's chills. i cannot it, spiders my oh. daughter's the same way but it is so brilliant it's so creative like i'm just like the the way in which he just thought about like every single aspect of their society and like how they went from the like enlightenment period to the bronze age to all these it's so great so great i love that book okay this is well let me ask you this do you have a favorite bookstore i have a lot of favorite bookstores my favorite comic store is million year picnic in cambridge Okay. Um, I mean, it's like your favorite comics, like their favorite comic book stores should be like, like cheers, right? You go in and everybody knows your name. Like okay. I go into the mini <laughs> picnic and it's like, Joel, you know, like, I love that. It's a small store. It smell, it still smells like a comic. Like when I think about comics, I think of like the basement of somebody's house, um, and like wood panels from like the eighties. And so it smells like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's amazing. Um, and so I love, I love that store. And then other, like other bookstores, I just like, it's just like, I love bookstores. I, mm-hmm. you know, I go in like lots of bookstores. I live near Brookline Booksmith. I have an apartment in Brent, in Boston. So I live near Brookline Booksmith. So I go in there a lot. Okay. Um, so like, there's a lot of like little stores that I like to go in. I, lo- I like, and like bookstores, but also like, I love libraries. And I always mm-hmm. tell people that libraries saved my life. So I yeah. love going to the libraries too. Libraries are like bookstores, but you get to take stuff out and not pay for it. That's exactly right. It's a dream. Um, What's the last book that made you laugh? Oh, you know, I read this little comic 
um, by Noah Van Scriver um, called Mountain View Terrace. So like it's, it's a, it's a, bio, it's a memoir that he's writing. And so like, it's like, we're about the same age. I think I'm like, I'm probably the age of his brother, like his older brother. Mm-hmm. And so like his older brother, who's a mess, like in real life, he's like, he was part of Comicsgate, like these terrible people. And Noah is like the opposite of him, which is really, and they both draw comics. Um, but, um, wait, what's like Comicsgate? So there was this whole thing, kind of like Gamergate and like this all this other stuff where these car- these cartoonists who were like super conservative, like right wing trolls. And they're saying like mm. comics are too woke and you're turning everything I women. See. And like, okay. um, and there was like all these women in comics got their jobs because they were sleeping their way through it. And it's not, you know, that's right. terrible stuff. Right. Um, and so like Noah's not that, but Evan is. Um, right. And um, so, but there's a point in the book where he like sneaks into his brother's room because he wants to read Spawn which was this like big comic in the early nineties that came out by Todd McFarlane, like all these creators left. But anyway, it was like a pivotal, I actually have one of the first copies over there framed in my studio. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and so he like goes and sneaks the comic out. And I just like, that was like hilarious to me. Uh, Cause if I had, like, I would have been something that I would have done, like right. sneaking this comic and then going and revering it. Right, right, as a right. Kid. <laughs> like, <laughs> like sneaking off into the woods to read this comic. That was, that was me. I would have done that. That made me laugh out loud. What about the last book that made you cry? What made me cry most recently? Um, I can't think of anything that made me cry. I mean, things make me angry a lot. Okay, well, like, that's the next question. What's the last yeah, book that made you angry? Like, uh, uh, Our Prison's Obsolete made me oh, angry. Yeah. Sure. Um, mostly because, like, Angela Davis as, like, an icon, like, it, it's got to, like, I don't know how, like, how do you, like, it's weird to me to think about being right, but being angry that you're right. Yes. Does, does that make sense like yes. she predicts these things mm-hmm. like she said in the 80s like reagan was the worst president for black people since like reconstruction right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people are like no like black people were enslaved during slavery you know right, like all right, of these right, different right, right, right. things and like and then reagan increases the prison population by 300 percent, ignores the aids crisis creates like mad like greed is good and this like right, this right. whole thing and like and so she gets to the you get to the end of that decade and or like now 20 years out or 30 years out and you're like she was right mm-hmm. and so like yeah i was right but holy shit i was right do yeah. you know what i mean yeah like so, i like, hate to be you- right about this yeah. And, and, then, and so like, but listening to some of the stuff and like, or, and reading about some of the like studies about ways in which we like deal with incarcerated people who are set, system impacted and that we know that there's a way to do it a different way, but we mm-hmm. don't because mm-hmm. of like late stage capitalism. And mm-hmm. that's a whole, I could talk for another hour about capitalism, especially yeah. predatory capitalism, but I won't. I, I mean, I, I could do that. <clears throat> it's one of my personal passion projects is to talk about this stuff. Um, but we won't, we won't, we're already 56 minutes in people. We won't. What's about, what about a book you felt like you learned a lot? Uh, stamped. I learned a lot about myself when I read stamped. I've probably read stamped, um, a hundred times. Um, and the big big stamp, the graphic stamp, the big stamp, um, different names for it. It's like, I know that there was like stamped and then stamped junior, but now that there's the kids and the graphic, I'm like, I can't keep it straight. I need different stamped titles. So I call the big stamp, the big boy stamped. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I read that and it like, I think it actually hardened my politics and changed Mm -hmm, the way I thought mm -hmm, about things. mm -hmm. Mostly because like, I think I had, like we all do. Right. And I haven't read how to be an anti-racist and I probably, and I need to, and it's like on my list of things to read, but mostly I didn't read those books because they were, I was working on the adaptation 
and I knew that they was like I didn't read Jason Reynolds' version and I didn't right. read Nick Stone's version because I was afraid that their versions would sneak into what I was doing. Right, right, right. And so I didn't want to do that. Um, but I need to do that. And so reading reading stamped, it really made like opened my eyes to like like I would read that respectability politics bullshit, right? And I would be like, Yeah, black people need we need to band together yep. and pull ourselves up by yep. our bootstraps. Yep. And yep. then you yep. look at it and it's like, but but no, right? Because we've done that, right? We've done that with we with Tulsa and they mm-hmm. burned it down and we built it back up. And you know, we built back the most people don't talk about it. We built back up those black businesses and and things and we don't, but we still haven't gotten we still haven't gotten the respect we need. So right. when did when when did we do things? Oh, it was about collective action. It was about recognizing that there's nothing wrong with black people. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. you know, like those things really profoundly affected me and like probably hardened my politics in a different, like it actually pushed me further, further toward, I'm, I'm not going to say communism or even socialism. Cause I'm like, I'm wondering if there's a new way of doing things, right. but like, holy shit, we need to take care of people mm-hmm. and we don't. Right. Yeah. And we need to, and we need to stop and like, you know, poor white people, need to understand that these things actually hurt them as well. Not right. just us, right? Not us brown people, right? Not just people of color, like that intersection of brown people and, and poor people, like these things are affecting them as well. And even right? like and, and middle-class white people and like exactly. upper-class white people. I mean, did you read The Some of Us by Heather McGee? No, but I do you know should a little read bit that. about like You that, should read that. that it's totally, how, yeah. Yeah. And also like when affirmative action was white and dying of whiteness, like there's all these books that talk about this stuff. I mean, I I had the same experience with stamped when I finished big boy stamped. I was literally like, Oh, I'm actually a different person now because a lot of things where I was trying to like give the benefit of the doubt or like, you know, pretend like things that I knew were wrong were maybe not racist. It, It just changed my understanding of like what the word racist could and did mean in a way that like it wasn't a personal thing, like it wasn't about an individual person being a racist 100% of the time, but about people being and doing and saying racist things and like racist laws being in place. Like all, like it just changed fundamentally how I thought about racism as like an idea, you know, like that, like the worst thing you could say to a white person is you're racist, even after they like call you the N word, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. it's like it just changed so much a- of that. Yeah. And it's not a, like racism is not a state, right? Right. It's not like a state of being. It is a transient situation that we often all, all of us, right? Right. Because we live in a society that inundates us with these things. We often find ourselves in positions to express anti-Black racism, anti-Asian racism, all those things, or misogyny or, you know, homophobia or queer folk, you know, like transphobia. Like those are things that like, because we're inundated, we will hold those ideas. And like, for me to say, for somebody to tell me, Joel, that was racist, doesn't mean that I'm like, I recoil, right? right. I like examine that and go, was it? Right. Oh, yeah, that was like, yeah, that was well, a racist thing. To use your like analogy about the container for comics, it's the opposite. Racism is not a container. It's what goes inside the container. Ex- so like, exactly. it's like, it could be the piece of you know, you're talking about sangria. It could be like the piece of apple is the racism. It doesn't mean everything in the sangria is racist. It just means like you do have a piece of apple in there that is definitely saying the N word. Like there's a piece of apple in there that is definitely against affirmative action in a weird way. Uh, 
You need um, to remove that piece of that. Like yeah. you're exactly right because like the container doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you're calling the container bad. You just like there's something in there that you need to pull out. That's exactly. And I think that that's the way we have to think about it. And I like I used to give this lecture called racism is dead, and it wasn't that racism was dead in its light. It was that the idea of racism is dead. The way in which we use that word because people call me racist online all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't think you know what that word means. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just not, it's, they don't, people don't understand it. They think it's something, they think it means something else. They don't think right. it means like a description of what you're doing. So. Right. Okay. We're so out of time. So I'm going to ask you my one last question and then we're going to wrap okay. up before next time. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Stand from the beginning. Big 100%. boy? 100%. Graphic? Yep. Both. Yep. Gotta pre- all of them. Got to tell Biden <laughs> to at least read yours too. Um, I love it. Joel will be back on the 26th of July. You need to get your copies of Fights and Stamped from the Beginning Graphic and support Joel because Joel's so great. And thanks for being here, Joel. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Joel Christian Gill for joining the show. And thank you to David Hawk and Felix Cruz for helping to make this conversation possible. Joel will be back with us on Wednesday, July 26th to discuss the Stacks Book Club pick Watchmen by Alan Moore with illustrations from Dave Gibbons. If you love this show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts or Spotify, leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and TikTok and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, the This episode of the stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 